Subhangi Agarwala is a lawyer based in Delhi, where her work focuses primarily on international trade law and public international law. She has previously worked with the Max Planck Institute of International Law and the United Nations International Law Commission under the Helton Fellowship. In a previous life, she interned with the international arbitration teams of two multinational law firms. To make sense of these varied experiences and reflect on the life of international law more generally, she runs a blog titled International Law and the Global South. Thank you for being on the podcast with Asha Bhangi. So, to start with, for students who want to pursue international law as a career, what sort of advice would you provide broadly? What are some things that need to be kept in mind? In what year of study can they start thinking about it? What are some basic things that you think that are prerequisites to pursuing a career in international law? Hmm. Okay, so I think this is an interesting question, mostly because I think all advice is sort of futile um, and detrimental, especially when you're trying to enter a field that's as dynamic as international law, but there are no like uh, fixed rules on how you should be approaching it. And the reason why I'm saying that the advice will probably be detrimental is mostly because of personal experience. Um, For instance, like the common advice is that to start a career in international law, you would have to get an LDM prior to starting a career. And I don't think that that has been my case. Um, however, what I would definitely recommend is if you are like genuinely interested in international law, it's best to distinguish yourself from people by um, having proof of work, which is different from, say, just doing a moot or writing a paper. Uh, but actually showing your interest in like one tangible area of international law, which I think serves as a better indicator of the skills that you have accumulated over a CV. So, yeah. Um, when you say like tangible and a tangible area and something that's not a publication or a moot, what sort of work would you recommend? Because these opportunities are often not very well known or students especially from India they don't know how to apply to these things or have access to them because most universities especially government universities in India they don't give you access to these opportunities in a way that say for an instance uh, say for instance an NYU would so how can we go about navigating this space okay so I think you're absolutely right I do think that um, moots and papers are a wonderful introduction to international law. But I do like think that we need to be cognizant of the fact that there are just so many people who are applying not only from India, but also from the rest of the world, that um, you have to show initiative that just goes beyond participation in an activity. And this can take various forms, right? Of course, there is no like one set of activities that you should be doing. Um, but Like in my instance, for instance, uh, I started a blog on international law, which is called the International Global South, which is which initially started as an endeavor for me to accumulate my own thoughts on the field, but has now grown far bigger than what I had imagined it to be. And uh, it has also given me access to a wide variety of professional networks, which I would not have encountered otherwise. Similarly, another possible alternative would be um, joining, say, organizations, starting your own organizations where you actually 
doing work that would be required by various people and this it's not only scholars right this is people uh, practitioners of international law uh, government officials diplomats all of them rely upon international law but especially in a country like india as opposed to say the united states there is, there aren't enough resources which would explain international law to a layman explain say treaty negotiations um, where you can leverage your skills as a lawyer but also i don't know like possibly showcase it to a wider audience than simply yeah. your peers at law school but would you suggest like building something from ground zero is a good way of showing interest in international law showing your affiliation towards it something like you did would that be a suggestion for people who are interested in this field so i mean of course that's one option right but it also depends on the amount of time you have i think so i am a big fan of like showing your work online of course there are significant downsides to it in that um, that it 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 just comes off a little cringeworthy to a lot of your peers if you're constantly showcasing your work on the other hand i think wh- why i think it's really important in this field in particular is because say if you're just a student in like a university regardless of even if you're in a national law university in india you probably your university will probably not be known by the stalwarts of the field just because that they are accustomed to looking at students from global north institutions because they are also the institutions that can afford to pay um, students to get like say various internships in various fields right so i think there is a significant value in like either writing for journals blogs yeah. starting something on your own or even like just trying to get in touch with as many people as possible because international law is a field where networking is i think a fairly important thing to do um because i think the i think the the, the really big problem in really establishing a career in international law is just the early steps when you just need to get your foot in the door but once that's there once you like establish um, some sort of Uh, a relationship with a couple of good mentors i think it just becomes a lot easier down the line right um just thank you so much for that answer just going on a slightly different tangent i just wanted to bring in the fact that you were also the recipient of the helton fellowship uh i mean i understand that the fellowship entails a grant for a proposed research project so would you like to share us share with us what the research project was and how it was relevant to international law today Sure. So I was assisting Professor Dirit Tlati, who is the Vice Chair of the United Nations International Law Commission. He's also the Special Rapporteur on Uscogens. Um, now, the very idea of peremptory norms of general international law presents a challenge to foundational elements of international law because the idea of a hierarchy of rules of international law, where some rules have the power to invalidate other rules. is one that sits uncomfortably in the traditional structure of international law and partly because of this um there is a certain uncertainty concerning important aspects relating to peremptory norms including how peremptory norms are to be identified and consequences flowing from it so it's against this like gap in literature that uh, the international law commission placed the topic of use cogents on its agenda um i think this like on a more practical level the things that i found very interesting um in this research which i think really worked well for my helton fellowship application was that when you're trying to identify what forms use cogents there are also like 
methodological questions that you have to answer. Uh, for instance, whether gender discrimination can be used cogent's norm or whether self-determination can be used cogent's norm. And I think a potential critique of the ILC's current work is that um, it really abides by what Hilary Charlesworth calls international law as um, a law of crisis, right? Because structural forms of violence, um, including, say, uh, the right to alleviate poverty as a use cogent's norm is just not recognized, whereas something like um, right against apartheid would be recognized. Right. Um, just, to, just to follow up, I think that from what I understand, the right to alleviate property or some uh, right to alleviate poverty or something like that would be centered around the problems of a third world nation per se. And do you feel that international law, where I primarily focus on first world countries, if we are to stick to that definition, the, its concepts at the least? Um, if I may, I think when we talk about the global north or the global south, I do think that poverty is something that afflicts both regions. I think the disparity in terms of global separation is wider. And we see more people falling below set poverty lines in the global south than we do in the global north. So I think with respect to that, we could understand this further. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think, so it is really interesting because I... um was working with uh, Professor Tladi with like certain, uh, I don't know, assumptions in mind on like certain assumptions also about the functioning of the International Law Commission. And I just like, I went in with like, oh God, this is a completely a positive doctrinal uh, institution, which does not really uh, cater to more critical perspectives. But he also raised some pertinent points about how like limited you are as an institution to uh, effect certain changes if states themselves do not want to affect those changes. Mm-hmm. So I think it is useful to, um, I don't know, have this more practical perspective to my more academic focus on these issues. Absolutely. Um, coming to our third question, for students interested in research, especially with international law and allied fields, whether it be at the intersection of gender or trade law, for instance, how would you recommend they go about um, finding more international opportunities, whether it be summer school or like the internship you did at the Max Planck Center? Um, Right. So I think some, I think there's some opportunities that are um, publicly available and also information on how to get these opportunities is also publicly available including like the Max Planck Institute mm-hmm. it's unfortunate that like other opportunities are literally like an effect of um, the people you know and like the amount of networking you can do uh, mm-hmm. which is why but like I, I think you just have to play the game um, in order to get those opportunities so like I mentioned it's really about Uh, getting your foot in the door which is meeting people like signaling that you have an interest in the field which is also when like other people might come to you and tell you okay this is an opportunity that you might be interested in Um, so that's like one aspect of it Um, unfortunately I do think that um, like apart from very few institutions in India like um, the general university which is doing a fantastic job with this uh, most law schools do not provide adequate support and infrastructure to really go down the path of exploring a career in international law. But I do think that you can do enough with what you have, like for instance, which is why where I think uh, quality would always trump quantity. So 
i think choosing say one or two activities that you enjoy and that's related to your field of interest and going really deep uh, with it and trying to be i don't know trying to achieve the most you can from it would really take you a long way and then of course uh, another potential option is doing research assistantships with uh, professors that you admire which i think is also like a very interesting uh, approach to take of course I I don't know I've I have heard like a couple of horror stories so you probably would want to be a little careful with who you want to work with but I do mm-hmm. think that um several professors even say professors at like really prestigious universities are open to getting applications from students who seem motivated and of course it's also like the added factor that uh we are so used to unpaid internships that we don't expect to get paid for our labor mm-hmm. so I think it's it's like a win-win situation for both absolutely right uh, if i may i mean this just brings me to my next question actually and uh upsetting about the the thing about unpaid internships i just wanted to ask you whether what let's say a student who wants to apply for a fellowship like you did or wants to intern with a max planck center or something like that what should they keep in mind while they let's say are applying for this institution or applying for a research internship is there something that should is there a structure for these things something that every student should at least have in their mind or something something like that okay so fellowships are a wonderful way to get the funding in order to do the work that you want to do right but of course getting fellowships is extremely hard and like you require a fair dose of luck um but i do think that say if you get a good opportunity i like uh, i think it's possible because at the end of the day most institutions are run by people and i do think that if you're smart about it and you like go to people and like tell them that this is an opportunity explain to them why it would make sense uh they might be willing to help you out financially i i do think that it's a bit of an uphill struggle and it's unfortunate that we have to go around asking for asking people for money instead of like the institutions being able to fund us but i think that's just something that you have to do so uh of course so that that's like you can either apply for fellowships but there are limited number of fellowships that cater to uh, international law for students from india especially if you've just done an undergraduate degree um and the other option is going to say lawyers or firms individually and asking them if they'd be willing to fund your fellowship and this could be in exchange for say a paper that you might want to co-write um, with them or for them or uh, it could just be like an exchange of value that you provide in some way or the other <laughs> so yeah I, i completely agree i think it's it's a bit of a struggle i think the fact that the united nations still has unpaid internships is quite shameful but yeah i think there are certain ways to work around that and honestly so I, this is something that i've just started on the blog where i started highlighting uh, what are the paid opportunities in the field of international law uh, and there are few but i think it's worth investing your time into looking at paid opportunities instead of like spending like immense amount of money and doing an unpaid internship with like zero chances of getting a job because um even so i i don't know whether you know this but even if you do an internship at the united nations um the chances of getting a job with that institution is remarkably low and it and of course the only plus side is that once you're there doing an internship you get to meet a certain number of people and depending on whether it's like a, your lucky day or not you might meet the right person who might be able to direct you and tell you when the opportunities um and vacancies arise mm-hmm. So in light of this um 
what are some long term career options for people who might be interested in international law other than academia if they would like to stay in india especially prior to pursuing an llm and in light of this how has your experience been till now as an international trade lawyer hmm okay so i think the fun bit about being an international lawyer is that you can occupy a variety of roles so um the available career paths for like international lawyer can be like working at a law firm uh working with the ministry of external affairs international organizations and also non-profit groups of course i think um once you have some experience you get some more exciting opportunities for instance you can help negotiate treaties you can be representatives of um uh, particularly smaller developing states to international organizations because they are real, they are in real need of um, like equipped legal counsel or mm-hmm. amicus curiae before international courts um but so i work as an international trade lawyer and i also do some consulting work for international organizations on the side and international trade law is basically in like involves uh, helping clients who may wish to lower tariffs on imported goods or obtain licenses to export uh, restricted goods and maximize use of fair trade agree of sorry free trade agreements um however mm-hmm. like it also has like certain highlights for instance um, recently my firm was representing india before the world trade organization in three disputes against the european union japan and the customs territory of taiwan and uh, i think it's interesting because i think especially for like young lawyers like us um i think firms in india give you more opportunity and more leeway to do a lot more work than what i imagine you get in international firms mm-hmm. for instance um, i was allowed to present oral arguments before the panel which is an absolutely crazy and exhilarating opportunity right this is not this is not something that you can imagine um gaining at a foreign firm at the same time at an, a foreign firm you'd probably get exposure to a wide variety of matters so i really think that uh, it's about really making the most of the particular opportunity you have uh, because like the grass will always be greener on the other side but there are certain like very valuable career options that you can possibly engage with in india too absolutely and um finally to conclude i'd like to ask you about the representation of women from the global south in international law what are some ways in which other than of course broad representation in say the icj or the ilc what are some ways in which they can be better represented because even when it comes to feminist perspectives of reading the law or understanding and interpreting international law especially certain aspects of humanitarian law it's always framed in a way that it is obviously it has been framed by men but it doesn't seem to take into account a lot of other perspectives so what are some ways you think in which progress can be made in this area mm-hmm. okay so um, there are like several ways to improve representation like i think minimum voting requirements uh, which is what the icc does is one of the most um, robust measure that has been adopted so far but i actually think that the problem um, 
currently is that we have a very limited and fractured understanding of um, what feminist approaches to international law ought to be. I do think we need to go beyond representation. Um, for instance, like the kind of questions that I think we should be asking are um, not only how to get more women uh, into these international organizations, but also to see who are the, how are the women who are getting nominated by national groups to these mm-hmm. international organizations getting treated within the institution. Absolutely. Because um, I think with time you see that as the representation of women is increasing, you're also seeing a shift away from institutional law to softer forms of law. Um, then like other, I think equally important questions are uh, to see who are the women who are getting selected to these organizations. Uh, I'm sure you guys have read about Hilary Charlesworth getting mm-hmm. elected to the ICJ, which is like a fantastic thing, right? Because she's self-proclaimed feminist. But at the same time, I think it's practically unfathomable that someone from India, a woman from India would get yeah. uh, nominated. Um, and so I think it's valuable to also see that who, which are the states where you expect more women to be and um, whether that will also shape the kind of representation that is eventually uh, provided at the institution. Um, I think it's also interesting to talk about the issues that these women are given to work on mm-hmm. because I think yeah. um, I think there's like an understanding that women will be suited for human rights yeah reports. I think you had shared a piece um, that I had read that said this and that yeah. um, it had to the women who are chosen have to be looked at more intersectionally other than their gender and how women are always assigned to things that have human rights attached but they won't be given say nuclear disarmament compared to that so I think that is something that definitely should be looked into and discussed yeah absolutely there's also like this understanding that women are suited for like particular kinds of like activities uh, which also in, like interestingly gets reflected in like security council resolutions mm-hmm. uh, because like this is it's and this kind of understanding has essentially led to a fragmented space uh, where women are dealing with women's issues mm-hmm. and men or are perceived dealing with women's else. issues absolutely exactly exactly so yeah I, I do think we need to shift the conversation <laughs> beyond just representation definitely <laughs> And um, I think this has been great, especially for those of us who come into law school wanting to study international law from MUN experiences in high school. It really opens our eyes. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Shubhangi, for being with us today and for sharing all that we've discussed. Uh, We shall be concluding the podcast now. Thank you so much once again.